As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, I feel like a lot of our best episodes are often based on something in a previous episode. And we're like, (laughs) oh, that sounds interesting. Like, you know, we did the dredging episode because of something that we learned about when we were talking about why your luggage was stuck or why your goods were stuck. Yes, that's exactly right. And this is a similar episode, isn't it? We heard something interesting uh, and it came from the commodity space, and we've decided that we need to dig in a bit further. Right. So earlier in the year, a couple months ago, I recall we were having a chat with uh, Jeff Curry, who mm-hmm. is the top commodity strategist at Goldman Sachs. And of course, the, the overall topic was just like this tremendous commodity inflation that has been like the story of much of 2021 and 2022. And a lot of the focus has been uh, oil and a lot of the focus has been food. But then he also said that copper specifically might be one of the tightest commodity markets that we've ever seen in history. Yeah, which is kind of surprising because, I mean, A, you just don't hear copper talked about as much as something like oil and gas. But B, if you look at the price chart of copper, it's been coming down in recent months, mostly because of um, you know concerns over China's economic growth and the lockdown and things like that. But it's not necessarily a market that is screaming uh, structural underinvestment and supply tightness. Right. I think there's sort of like this long term story because the increases in demand for copper are expected to be uh, very high. Unlike oil, uh, it takes a really long time to get new production online. It's not like you just like put a new rig out somewhere in Texas or the Dakotas and start uh, pumping. So it's a there's a lot of demand for copper. And although the prices are down recently, it's still up a lot since um, this is crisis overall. So it's still like a Type thing. But I think structurally long term, apparently, it seems like it's going to be a tough market. Well, this is what I'm trying to get at, uh, perhaps inelegantly, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's copper is something that we don't talk about that much. Yes. But if you look at it, if you look at the long term dynamics, it seems to have some resemblance to what we've seen with oil and gas. So big booms and busts that kind of lead to uh, structural underinvestment or under exploration and unwillingness to expand mines also because of environmental concerns. Yes. And then the reason that's so interesting is because if you look at what's going on 
with the attempts to electrify everything, attempts mm -hmm. to bring down emissions and things like that, well, you're going to need electric wires for that. And so copper becomes a really important strategic commodity that is nevertheless kind of underlooked at the moment. Yeah, totally. So the line that Jeff used in our podcast, he said, I would argue copper is likely to be the tightest commodity we'll have ever seen. You know, it's much tighter than what oil was during the 2000s. Let me remind you, oil went up 7x in the 2000s. Uh, you know, our forecast is 15,000 a ton on copper. But no matter what technology you use, you're going to be using electro electricity. And the only thing that can conduct electricity, given the rules around the periodic table and the rules of chemistry, is copper at the rate we need to conduct it. So it's like, all right, we got to follow up. And so we are going to follow up on copper with a fellow, uh, a colleague of Jeff's at Goldman Sachs. We're going to be talking to Nick Snowden, who runs Metals Research at Gold Goldman Sachs, and he'll explain that line and what we should be watching for with copper. So, uh, Nick, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Hey, a pleasure pleasure to be, to be on with you, mate. What does that mean? When we talk about a tight commodity market, how do, how do you define that? Well, I mean, I think when we look at the, the outlook for, for the copper market, um, you know, over, over the course of the next three, five, ten years, you know, what we see are essentially impossibly large deficits developing uh, over that, that time frame. By, by the middle of this decade, we're, we're forecasting the largest ever deficit in, in the copper market, so just two years away from now. Um, and by the end of the decade, the, the largest ever long-term deficit. So I think you know, what that's telling us relative to, to the starting point already of, of very low inventories is that this market has such severe imbalances that you know they're not kind of resolvable at, at current price levels. Um, and, and I think that's the, the kind of crux of the issue in the copper market. Um, it's just an impossibly tight future wow. at, at today's price that there's no fundamental adjustment underway that, that can meaningfully solve what, what lies ahead. So can you um, dig into that a little bit further? Because, you know, I mentioned the price action in copper recently. It, it is up a lot over the past year or two, but it has been coming down. And so I guess my question is, what is it that you guys are seeing that the market isn't currently seeing? And what is responsible for the looming supply imbalance that you just mentioned? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's, there's a, a kind of a horizon difference there. Um, you know, I think in, in the near term, you know, commodity markets are ultimately driven by, by spot fundamentals. Um, and, and, you know, in the, in the current kind of environment, uh, we are seeing a weakness in, in Chinese demand due to the, due to the, the, the COVID lockdowns that has generated some softening effect on, on the market. On top of that, we are seeing slightly stronger exports of, of copper out of Russia than was expected um, when you went back to, to, to the beginning of the, the invasion. So that's creating a bit of softness in the market, and, and that has certainly weighed on price. But you know, those are short-term transitory issues in, in the copper market. When we talk about the, the structural bull market in copper, you know, that's underpinned ultimately by, by two key factors. One, um, you know, there's essentially no decarbonization without copper. It's a you know absolutely integral raw material for for for, for the, the key green technologies, EVs, EV charging infrastructure, renewables, um, and and I think you know we see the demand impact from 
um, decarbonization um, efforts over the course of this decade, generating as much of, a, of an uplift to copper demand as China did in, wow. in the 2000s. Hmm. Um, so it, it absolutely meant. Um, but at the same time, that's coming up against an environment where we hit peak copper supply within the next two years. And there's a complete absence of fresh investment coming into the sector. And so after that peak, supply is is is, is uh, trending into an open-ended contraction. So you have this um, clear tightening tension between this boom in, in demand tied to the, the green transition and you know, really a complete lack of um, growth coming from, from the supply side. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk more about the demand side. So in 2022, right now, how many tons of copper does the world use, I don't know, in a day or a year or whatever, however you like to measure it? And what is the sort of industry or usage breakdown? And then what do you see as a that number, the total volume demanded in the year 2030? And what will be the segmentation of where that demand is coming from? Yeah, sure. So I mean, if you look at the the, the global copper market today, demand in in 2022 will will come in at, a, at around 24 million tons. Okay. So you know, the way we look at that, that demand breakdown, I think this is the, you know, in the context of the uh, placing the green transition is, you know, green versus non-green demand. Um, okay. Today, okay. the world is dominated by non-green demand. Um, that's copper going into construction, you know, wiring in your house, um, wiring in, in um, electronics, in cars, um, in the grid. Um, you know, that out of that 24 million tons this year will, will make up about 20, Two and a half million tons. So, absolutely dominant driver um, of, of global copper demand today. And green demand, which we categorize as electric vehicles, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, and then the kind of green power sector, so wind and, and solar, that, that only amounts to about one and a half million tons of, of copper demand today. But if you look at what's going to play out over the next uh, five, 10 years, that balance between green and non-green demand is going to switch quite quite sharply. Um, by 2025, green demand will have doubled. 
gone to, to, to closer to 3 million tons. Hmm. And by the end of the decade, um, that, that number will have risen to between 6 to, to 7 million tons. So green demand will go from, from today being only oh. about 5% of the, 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 the global demand to, to, to closer to 20%. So an immense uplift. Um, and, 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 you know, I think key is it, it's already starting to play out. You know, we're already seeing um, incredible growth in the EV sector, particularly in, in, in China. Um, you know, the, the growth rates there um, are spectacular, you know, near doubling um, in market size, um, you know, well beyond, you know, any, any expectation um, if you went back to the beginning of this year or, or next year, but, but also in Europe as well. Um, and we're also starting to see really aggressive growth in, in green infrastructure. Um, and, and that's not just China, that, that's Europe as well. So, you know, it, it's no longer theoretical demand. Even though it's a small part of the market, it's growing at a very rapid rate. Um, and that, that rate is going to accelerate over, over the course of the, the next few years. So I think I'm going to ask the same question, but just from the supply perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. So where does copper come from? Or maybe a better question is, how hard is it to get copper? Because I think copper, I think, you know, big mines that are bringing out new supply. But I also remember back in 2008, 2009, when we also had very high copper prices, there are all these stories about people stealing scrap metal in order to get bits of copper and, and sell them for loads of money. So how difficult is it to actually source? And what does the supply path actually look like for the next few years? Yeah, so I mean, I think the the first point to make is that there isn't a shortage of of copper in the Earth's crust. That you know, there are um, a lot of potential mineable um, options out there, but we're just not seeing capital flowing into into those projects. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's very different to what we saw in the two thousands because in in two thousand and two, when that that kind of respective bull market began. Almost immediately, you saw the supply side respond. You saw projects being approved and investment flowing rapidly, and, and the supply side really, you know, almost moved in lockstep with the, the increase in price. This time round, that isn't occurring at all. You know, over the last two years, even though copper, the copper price has doubled, there hasn't been a single new copper mine approved. Wow! Um, so it's a startling difference, um, and I, I think, yeah. You know, the reasons for that are, are similar to, to some of the issues facing broader commodity extraction industries. But I think the number one constraint on, on the copper mining industry you know, is the experience of the last cycle. Um, because you know, the mining industry faced a near-death experience in, in 2013, 2014, as a result of the overbuild in, in response to you know, to, to, to high prices in, in, in the mid-late 2000s. And, and I think now you have, um, you know, a, a much more conservative mentality uh, amongst management teams in, in the mining sector reflecting that, that experience. Um, and so that conservatism, you know, is very difficult to, 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 to erode, and it's certainly still firmly in place. Um, look, I, I think it's not just that, though, also. I think, you know, what's different now to 20 years ago is also, you know, we have the ESG influence on, on it, it, investor allocation, but also at a, a micro level. You know, so less capital has flown into, into commodity sectors because they haven't screened well um, through, through the ESG filter, but, but also, uh, you know, at a micro level, at a mining level, if you want to build a, a copper mine today, you know, even before you break ground, 
um, you will, will spend two to three years waiting to, to get the right permits to actually move forward with construction. 20 years ago, that same process took six, maybe 12 months maximum. So you know, wow. much, much higher hurdles from an environmental and social perspective. Is this a global phenomenon that everywhere around the world, because look, I'm not particularly surprised that say in certain developed markets that people, sure. that there's been a big change uh, in terms of the environmental expectations and the permitting process, but is this like a global phenomenon? Because I didn't, I don't know, you know, I, I think about the U.S. in particular, maybe Europe, but has everywhere in the world essentially gotten more stringent about these things? Yeah, I mean, look, the, one of the hardest places in the world to to get a, a copper project going today is Chile, and, and Chile is the the Saudi Arabia of right. of the copper market, and, and that is one of the places where the the permitting process. You know, has kind of more than tripled in in length. So, it is it is incredibly difficult. But I think the other problem is that you know young people have not been going into the mining sector for the last decade. Yeah. They've been going into you know tech or you know yeah. kind of. And so what that means is you've got a real bottleneck now on on skilled labour in the industry. There aren't enough engineers to to support. Um, a project if you if you want to want to get it off the ground. So there's practical bottlenecks, there's ESG bottlenecks, and there's just conservatism around spending money. And, and on top of that, investors are, are kind of getting a great cash return story from from the mining sector. You know, very very high free cash flow yields, and they're not demanding growth from from the sector either. So you know, we're not we're we're, we're first innings in in terms of the the supply response for for, for copper certainly. Tracy, it's just so fascinating how so many of these stories keep aligning. Of like totally. The lesson, having to unlearn the lessons, essentially, of the last decade in order to make it. Yeah, better. it's we internalized trauma from the last cycle, yeah. and now we're very careful about fueling the next boom-bust cycle. But in the meantime, you get this underinvestment um, and higher prices, but they don't seem to do very much. One thing I'm wondering is, l let's assume that everything stays pretty much as it is. Environmental regulations stay put because people do care about the climate and there are concerns about digging stuff out of the earth. Uh, there's continued underinvestment for various reasons. How fungible is copper? Mm. Like, what are the alternatives that could be used when it comes to something like yeah. electrifying a car or something like that? Well, I, th I think you know, one thing we've got to recognize about copper is that you know, it is not a raw material where it has close competitors in, in its key role as a, as a conductor. Um, because it's such a good conductor um, that you know, it really has a primacy over its key roles in um, the grid, in cars. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't other potential conductors, but you know, things like aluminium, um, you know, require a lot more aluminium to achieve the same level of conductivity as, as copper, and so it's just not practical mm. for uses where you have a, a small amount of space. Um, and so, really. There isn't a competitor for copper for you know for for, for the majority of it, of it, of its key roles. Um, that's not to say that there couldn't be some substitution towards other raw materials in, in um, kind of less space confined um, use. I think aluminium is is top of that list. But look, if you look at the aluminium market right now, that's facing its own um, story of of uh, of. Underinvestment on the supply side, and also is levered to 
to the green transition. Um, and that's reflected in the very rapid run up in, in aluminium price that, that we've seen over uh, the, the last 18 months. So the most obvious potential substitute is also um, facing near record pricing. And so it's not you know, an attractive um, kind of substitution choice. So, I mean, I think the answer to you would be there isn't really um, a, an obvious um, yeah. kind of raw material that can step in. Um, now, look, necessity is the mother invention. Um, and you know, if copper prices go to the levels that, that we expect, if not higher, then you know, will that incentivize much greater efforts in, in terms of, of trying to find alternatives or perhaps more reasonably kind of dilution of the level of copper used in some of these um, uh, areas? And that, and that could well play out not just in non-green uses, but also new new areas. So you may well see slightly less copper used in an EV in five, 10 years time, partly because of the high prices and just partly because it's technology that's new, that's developing, and, and over time they'll find efficiencies. I think that's probably more of the demand effect you'll see than you know, a, a kind of a material step away from copper to, to another raw material. You said something that I want to go back to because it seems extremely important, and it's not something – I don't know if any other guests have really talked about it, which is the talent crunch. So it's like, okay, we understand – there's the 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 cash shortfall, the reluctance to invest, and the underinvestment, and so forth, and the sort of ESG environmental considerations. But of course, we just had this decade, right, where if you are a talented person, there's a, and you want to make money and have a booming career, you probably went into software, or there was a really good uh, thing like that. Can you, or something like that? Can you talk more about this idea, the talent shortage of like what happens when sort of like the best and the brightest don't want to work in uh, extractive industries? Well, I mean, I think I think the most obvious impact is that you just have a shortage of labor to to drive supply adjustments. There literally are a handful of teams recognized around the world who are good at um, building um, and growing production at, at copper mines. Now that reflects the the, the, the lack of new entrants in, into the mining uh, market, but I, I think that that really just limits the the pace at which you can um, undertake new new projects. So even if you decide today, you know we are going to spend several billion on a new copper mine, you know, you're still going to struggle to find the the the, the engineer engineering team to to support that. So I think that's huh. a bottleneck and and a, and a further delay on on response. But of course, the other aspect is that you know you probably can find the, the right team, but you're going to have to pay top dollar to get them, and and so that then feeds into this risk of capital cost escalation, which is exactly what we saw back in the 2000s. Prices of of inputs into projects, labor, machinery, fuel, you know, were all rising rapidly, and so initial capital costs for projects ended up being far too low versus where, where they ended up. And I think that's that's a very real risk that, that we're facing in, in the mining sector today. And on top of that, yeah. it means costs are just rising. So the cost curve in, in the copper mining industry and in many other metals is inflating. And, and the top end of the cost curve, the most expensive mines in the world to, to operate, you know, is now within touching distance of today's copper price. Um, so, I mean, that's actually important for supporting where prices are, but it, you know, it doesn't solve anything in, in, in terms of 
the the, the structural imbalances in this this market. It just makes the, 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 it that, that more expensive to to solve, and ultimately supports the idea that we need um, much much higher prices than we have today. So. Just on the existing, I guess sort of one and a half questions, but what is the supply outlook look like for the existing set of copper mines that are in production? Like how much are they going to fade in terms of how much more can be pulled out of them? And at what point will we see the dam break, so to speak, where these high prices and this high demand actually does induce someone somewhere to get uh, uh, break ground on a new mine? Like when is that going to happen? Yeah, so I, I think if you look at current production, what, what we have over the next 12 months is a kind of final spurt of growth um, set to come through. Um, and then we hit peak production at the end of 23 in the, in the beginning um, uh, quarter of, of 2024. So there is a little bit of growth. That's from a small number of projects in, in Chile, Peru, and, um, and in the Copper Belt in Africa. Um, but then after that, we essentially flatline, and then on the, the kind of current guidance from from producers, we'll start to to enter a phase of open ended contraction of around one percent a year from from twenty twenty five onwards. Um, so, I mean that's pretty pretty set in stone. Um, look, I, I think you know in, in terms of you know what's the the the, the kind of point that that kind of changes that. Um, I, you know, I think it really has to be price, but I think it also has to be a realization that, you know, copper is this absolutely key raw material for the green transition and, you know, is going to be a, a hurdle, a bottleneck on the planned pace of, of decarbonization. Um, we're just not going to have enough copper around to support the necessary growth in in green technologies on on the kind of current roadmap. So I think you know that means price has to be absolutely key, but I think it also has to be a function of policymakers, um, governments kind of grasping that fact and and perhaps kind of easing the the ability to 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 to, to grow production. Um, so I think it's a confluence of factors. Um, but you know, absolutely number one, it, it has to be much, much higher prices because today's price is not kind of moving the needle all in, in terms of, um, producers, you know, interest in, in, in investment. So one thing we've seen recently with certain commodities that might be in immediately tighter markets are the actual customer of these commodities trying to secure their own supply. So for instance, Tesla signing deals in order to get stuff like nickel from specific suppliers. Is that something that you would expect to happen with copper, that sort of vertical integration or, you know, end users actually trying to strike deals to source their own supply? I think it's. I think it's perfectly possible uh, because I think the the the, the issues that the copper face faces right now is far more extreme than than some of the the battery raw materials where where you've seen that proposed. Um, hmm. You know, I think we're not in as acute a stage of shortage today as some of those other metals, and so it's not as front and center in in terms of potential strategy, but. I think in two, three years' time, given how tight um, you know things are going to get, we will be hearing very, very similar conversations around copper. Now, 
that's absolutely too late. Those conversations need to be happening today. And you know, if the miners are not willing to, to, to start to invest, then you know, it should be these key downstream consumers who are, who are pushing, pushing that. So I, I think, yes, absolutely. I think that will have to happen, um, but it will probably happen too late. Um, and you know, as a result, prices are going to go absolutely ballistic to the upside and, and you know, the downstream will suffer because of the, 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 the current sort of intransigence in, in terms of supply investment. What are the environmental costs of mining? I mean, obviously, I assume the people who the countries and governments that are reluctant to rapidly uh, approve new mines have legitimate concerns about the environmental risks. What are they? And then specifically, like, how much do we all have to become Chilean political experts now to understand <laughs> what's going to be happening in the coming in the coming years? No, I, I think the, yeah, from a mining perspective, yeah. you know, I think the mining sector has actually been very good at reacting to to the new kind of ESG standards on 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 operations. So you know I think you know there, there, there's no kind of challenge for the for the mining sector in in terms of respecting um, new rules. Uh, you know respecting nature, um, kind of water supply. Yeah, like what is um, like mining due to the water supply or what are, how, what have well, we I seen mean, in terms of the environmental costs? It's not, a, it's not so much that it does anything to water supply, just the mining sector is a relatively intensive user of water. Yeah. Um, and so you, if you have a mine up in, high in the, in the mountains in the Andes and local communities around there, then um, you know, governments want water – to, to you know to, to flow to, to to local communities and so you know no there's no questioning of that at all but I think what it means is that um, the miners have then had to invest in you know essentially pumping seawater up from um, up to the to the operations and desalinization plants so what does that mean well it just means additional costs and time in terms of getting the the, the mines up to um, the, the, the kind of level of operation they need. Now, you know, on top of that, in some uh, regions, you've you've had pretty bad drought, and and certainly that's been an issue in Chile, an ongoing issue in Chile for the last few years. And you know, depend mining is a very water dependent process. The more water you have, the higher the throughput of of the kind of ore through the system, and and the yields you, well, sorry, you get on that. I'm sorry, what is the water? I I don't know much about mining engineering. What is the main use? Well, of you're, you're yeah. Well, you essentially have to kind of wash the the, the material that's yeah. coming out of the, yeah. the ground. So it's a kind of a cleansing process. And so, you know, the lower the flow of water through that, the the, the, the kind of lower the, the kind of essentially the, the yield. So it, it is key. Um, but mining companies are resolving that. Yeah. But, it, it, it you know, it, it adds cost to, to, to the system. So, look, I think it's there's no doubt the mining sector, particularly the copper mining sector, has been successful at, that, at adapting to you know, ESG um, hurdles, and I think if anything um, held itself to, to very high standards before you know, that became a kind of official mantra. But you know that comes with um, with, with additional cost and, and, and time in, in, in terms of, you know, of getting projects up to to, to speed.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what's the bear case for copper here? And the reason I ask is because um, I saw an article on the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, which obviously I read very religiously. (laughs) And the article was called Practical Power Beaming Gets Real. And this was like Nikola Tesla's dream, right? That instead of using wires or some type of physical conductor to transmit energy, you could actually do it in a different way, like a bolt of lightning that goes from one thing to another, that sort of thing. And I mean, I wonder, is is that the ultimate bear case for copper that we develop some sort of new technology that means you actually don't have to conduct through wires? Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think there are there are two two things that could transform the story. The first would be if we get you know, a production technology shift. So we, we've seen that play out in in other commodity markets over over the last twenty years. The, the most obvious is, is oil and, and shale um, in in the U.S. Is there any evidence of that type of production technology? shift occurring in copper? Uh, the answer would be no. You know, there's some developments at the margin around achieving higher return from, from tailings deposits, which are, which is the waste that, that mines um, generate during the, the production process. Um, typically, those tailing deposits are kind of left um, on the side, but, but there is some technology being developed that, that can actually achieve a, you know, quite a high return on, on the, the copper within those. But that's really a marginal production gain. That there's certainly nothing along the lines of, of shale. And, and I think even if there was, if you look at the history of, of production technology in the mining sector, it's incredibly slow to, to adapt. So in copper, back in the 1980s, there was a, a, a new production process called SXEW that, that actually quite, became quite a meaningful um, influence on production but not until the end of the 1990s and into the, the 2010. So it took it took over a decade for that technology to to, to scale up you know, and, and have kind of mass adoption. So there's nothing on that line, you know, in, in our line of sight. Um, and even then, I think it would be very slow. So that's not a solver, at least in the in the 2020s. And and then you know, on the the demand side, that that there isn't an obvious raw material com- competitive substitute. You can't rule that out. There's clearly a lot of work being done on, on these kind of alternatives, hmm. but we just don't see that, that happening. 
Um, and that, I think that's why when we look at the story, there just isn't the mind supply response coming through in time to, to, to meaningfully kind of lower the deficits in this market. So mind supply, in our view, is not going to be yeah. the solver. Um, and then, so what are we left with? Well, you know, really what you're left with is demand destruction. Right. And I think this is why we have such a, um, a bullish target on copper, because to achieve demand destruction and demand destruction in, in copper, it is much, much harder than in, in agricultural or energy products. And, and the reason for that is that the end consumer in, in, the, in the goods that they consume that, that have copper, you know, copper is really a very small part of the cost of that good, the price of the good that they face. So for the, for the copper price to drive demand destruction in, in cars, in, in, in electronics, you're going to have to see a massive outsized move in the copper price to achieve the, the necessary increase in, in, in the cost of the total good to, to drive that destruction, uh, demand destruction. It's very different to energy and agricultural um, commodities where you're really kind of nearly majority exposed to the oil price or, or, or you know, the, the wheat price with the food on your, your table. You, it just doesn't work that way in metals. This is really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. So copper is absolutely crucial to EVs, but it's not so big of a factor in the price of an EV that it's actually going to like change anyone's plans to build or buy one. And so you just get run up. But, you know, we just have a, like a couple minutes left here. So we're at, you know, in London, I think the LME price is right around $9,300 a ton for the price of uh, copper. Where, what are the scenarios where it could go? I think I've seen 15,000, but what are the scenarios? And then if we were to get some sort of demand destruction, like are there any use cases at that price that it becomes economical and they'd have to drop off? Oh, sorry. Well, I, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason we see prices going to, to 15,000 are, you know, one, we're already in a very tight market. Um, the, the COVID fiscal stimulus effects of the last two years have, have generated incredibly large deficits in, in many metals, copper included. And so we start really this, this kind of green supply crunch story already with very, very low inventories in, in the system. Okay. But then the next leg higher is ultimately going to be a reflection of that progressive green supply crunch, essentially removing the remaining inventory from the system over the next three years, and then the market having to go to incredibly high price levels to, to generate that end demand destruction. The, the thing about the copper market is that we've never been in such an extreme set of fundamental circumstances. We've never had to go to end demand destruction pricing to achieve a rebalancing. The, the bull market of the 2000s was nearly entirely solved by supply responses and, and that very rapid increase in, in mine investment. That, that's clearly not going to be the majority solver this time. So, so when we say 15,000, what we're saying there is you know, copper is going to have to go to a price level well beyond any level we've seen before historically to, to, achieve, to achieve that demand structure. Could 15,000 prove conservative? Absolutely. And, and the reason why I say that you know, look at oil in the 2000s. You know, oil started that decade um, you know, trading $10, $20 a barrel and ended the decade trading you know, $140, $150 a barrel. So you know, a sevenfold increase in price to, 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 to adjust the market enough to solve imbalances that oil faced in 2000 
that were very similar to, to what the copper market faces today. So we don't rule out that copper could could be a fifty thousand, could be a hundred thousand wow. dollar commodity. And that there are plenty of commodities that have achieved that. Look at lithium. You know, lithium is trading five times above, six times above the, the cost curve today. This does happen in commodity markets when you face such extreme fundamental imbalances and price you know, has to go to such extremes to, to, to solve that, that setup. Well, Nick, this was absolutely fascinating. We're, we could talk to you for a long time. We could, we've got to have you back on again at some point, but I learned a lot. Really appreciate you uh, coming on Odd Lots. And I will be paying close attention to copper over the next decade for sure, because that was very eye opening. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nick. That was great. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, that was fantastic. Wow, Tracy, a hundred thousand dollar copper. Did you hear that? Fifty thousand. <laughs> yeah, and I'm. I mean, I'm looking at the price chart of lithium to his point, and like five hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, it is not unheard of. Uh, the one thing that that struck me in that conversation, and you picked up on it already, but just this idea of how difficult it is to get away from these boom bust cycles yeah. because everyone comes out of the last experience thinking that's the way the market is, that's yeah. the way the world works, that's the way it's always going to be, uh, and then they proceed to become very fiscally conservative. It's all about cash flow versus yeah. funding new exploration and digging. And then we end up with a tight market. And then it seems like it's hard to get out of that. I, I guess this is the question, right? Like whether or not higher prices do incentivize more production or whether or not something has fundamentally changed. It really is striking. I mean, I'm, I was always sort of aware that like, okay, you have short cycle, short cycle commodities and long ones. So it's like you can start to ramp up oil production pretty fast right now if you added some more rigs. You could theoretically add acres to agriculture and get more wheat, corn, and soy, you know, in a sort of somewhat seasonal, timely manner in a few months. But I was always sort of, you know, I understand that it's not an overnight or even one year process to get a new mine online. But the fact that, like, we're now in this two year commodity bull market and we still haven't seen any yeah. new groundbreaking on anything, we might need even higher prices yet. And then, given that, that was pretty striking. It's like it used to be nine months, now it might be three years. That like you can start to see why this could be, as you know, Jeff said the last time we talked to him, the tightest commodity market we've ever seen. It also kind of begs the question of whether or not you need some sort of stability mechanism there. Yeah. So, you know, the oil and gas market has OPEC, which has at various times been described as the central bank for, yeah. for crude oil. And I wonder if you had something to sort of soften some of those troughs right. and peaks or just try to offset human nature, right? And, and the fear, greed <laughs> yeah, cycles. I don't know. Yeah, that's probably it's. Yeah. The lithium chart, by the way, that you mentioned is totally is insane. Right? I'm just looking. Yeah. At I hadn't realized. I, I didn't realize either. That, yeah. That lithium chart is uh, completely nuts. And yeah. And so like. Also, I thought his point was really interesting about like how the end users of copper, for as important as it is, that's not the key yeah. price. And so it's like you could have like what I don't know, a triple leg of the copper price. It's not going to affect the price of a Tesla that much, right? If right. It's, and so you get in this situation, which like, well, it's not going to discourage any buyers, and so the demand just keeps going straight up. Anyway, 
so much in there. And I, we got to do more like on the whole talent thing, like all these people who are like, I got think, out of like, yeah, yeah. I, th I think this is exactly what it is, right? Is you think of it as a market, but ultimately the decisions that are impacting the market are being done by actual people. And so we need to talk to like the head of a mining company and ask them, yeah. why don't you drill more? Or why don't you dig more? And we need to talk to a, a miner we to, and- We need to talk to the Dean at the Colorado School of Mines <laughs> or Texas A&M yeah. about like, are students excited about going into mining again? Yeah, I think we should Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's All do right. That. All right. All right. Should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Arman. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.